Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm the slightly technologically incompetent Dr. Doolittle. Joining me in the virtual studio, well, the real and the virtual sort of, a panel beater and Spock. Spock's going to talk about kids and COVID, and I think he's almost on the line, and we'll say g'day in a second, but I also want to tell you about our two other great guests this morning. We've got Professor John Emery, a an expert from Melbourne University in all aspects of cancer, general practice, he's, he's sort of like uh, wears multiple hats and he's going to be talking about the dropping rates of cancer diagnosis during the pandemic and what we need to do about it. And also later on in the show is Associate Professor Natasha Smallwood, a respiratory physician from Royal Melbourne Hospital, who's running a massive study right now on the psychological and other impacts of COVID on frontline healthcare workers. In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised if a few of you have done the survey already. And if you haven't, jump onto our Facebook page, Radiotherapy Triple R, where we popped up a link to it last night. She's going to tell us some of how early results and how everyone can take part. Panel BD, you're there, mate. I am indeed. How are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm, um, I, I, I missed your intro, so I hope I'm not repeating something, but um, uh, stoked about number 14. That is number 14 would be our number of new cases today, yeah? It is. We're teenagers. I know. It's pretty good, isn't it? Oh, it's so good. And even more importantly, I guess the real number we want to watch is the rolling 14-day number, and yep. that's down to low 30s. So that, it's just incredible. It was only July 30th, we were 721. Yeah, it's amazing. And the regional 14-day average is down to 1.8. Wow. Yeah, so, and if we stay on those numbers, which, we're, I mean, I think, well, I touch wood, I'm clicking my head as I say this, um, you know, in two, well, what, at the end of next week, it's about the 28th of September, then we go to sort of the next level down again. Now, which isn't massive changes because, you know, right now we're allowed two hours exercise, 9pm curfew, kids' playgrounds open, buddies for singles, but there's a few extra things coming then. So, look, you know, the horizons, we're, we're clearly on the right path. I think, you know, I think it's, that's pretty obvious. It is, it is. And, and, I mean, you don't want to take joy out of other people's misery, but I think one thing that underlines just how incredible it is, this six-week turnaround... Um, the news coming out of places like uh, Spain, Israel, and India, for it, just to name you know three, is just they're going in the other direction. Even even England looks like they're going for a second lockdown, which probably reminds us that you know of the vigilance required in an ongoing way. You know, it's, uh, I heard. In fact, I, I'm. Where did I hear it this morning? I think I... Oh, no, I was listening to an interview somewhere on a podcast this morning and someone... It was um, Tony Collette talking about what life was like in Sydney. And she was saying when they came out of their first big lockdown, um, everyone just went back to normal super fast. And I think a lot of us found that after the last lockdown. You know, gee, I hope we've learned our lesson this time and... You know, we remember social distancing, hand washing, coughing into our elbow, wearing masks, etc., etc. And, you know... I hope this time it sticks. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, you know, who knows? Hey, have we got um, Spock on the line? Certainly do. Are you there, Spock? I'm here, Doolittle, listening to your dulcet times. How are you, mate? Are they dulcet? Are they dulcet, really? Yeah, no, uh, I think you're sounding particularly dulcet this morning. You sound dulcet to me too, man. Hey, uh, people who have forgotten, Dr Spock is a 
and paediatrician and an infectious diseases expert. So he's, uh, he's at, right at the front line. And you had a couple of things that had uh, taken your attention in the news, didn't you? Yeah, well, in fact, one thing was just uh, just reading the paper again this morning. Um, Duncan Maskell's at it again, and I, I do. I mean, I think that uh, notwithstanding everything you and Panel Beater were just saying about the decisions that Victoria has taken, um, you know, Duncan Maskell, for those who don't know, he's the vice chancellor, so the sort of guy in charge of the University of Melbourne. And I guess as a good academic and um, you know, educator and so on, he's challenging us to 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 the way we. To the way we think, and uh, challenging us to to think about about death and what our tolerance for death is, and just sort of saying, well, you know, that one of the things that we we don't seem to prepare to to consider is, you know, what what um, what preparedness we have to accept some deaths, given that you know there'll be some other outcome. You know, if we if we don't if, with all the close the closures that we've had, well, there are some huge consequences of that, of course. And he, he sort of says, for example, you know, if we hypothetically stop 100 people dying from the virus, but over the next two years, 200 people died from the effects of poverty and mental health, would we accept that? And so he talks about just trying to sort of make sure that we're thinking, I guess someone has to, you know, we, we do expect that, and I, I presume that our public health experts have, been thinking in this way. They've been taking into account, into account not only the mortality but the quality of life and the well-being of people. And the and I guess you know this is a pretty difficult thing to talk about, but the value to society of of people. So you know, do we accept you know if eighty or ninety year olds um, are going to you know they've only got a few years left, they're in a nursing home and they were going to probably die in the next year or so. You know, how do we take that into account compared with the restrictions to, to 30, 40-year-olds and what's happening to their businesses and so on. So I guess it's just an interesting thing to consider. Tough to talk about, but, um, it, it, you know, he's, he's challenging us to think about it at least and to, to put it in, into the, you know, the public attention. I appreciate the debate personally because, you know, for me, it seems to me that we've all got to be on the same team and we've all got to follow what our leaders say. So we've all got to stick to the um, guidelines, um, do the right thing, etc., etc. But it doesn't mean we can't have a parallel process where we debate the pros and cons of different approaches. And I know when, uh, when Duncan Maskell first published his first letter that sort of promoted this idea about a month ago, there was a little bit of backlash, people saying it was callous to talk in this way because the flip side of, um, of talking about other options was potentially more COVID deaths. But, of course, the point you're making is it's really about having that um, sophisticated conversation where we talk about the horrible thing of, of deaths. But at the end of the day, someone has to. So, like, every time we um, licence a new medication, there's someone sitting there somewhere working out the value to society of different lives and deaths and you know it's a it's a horrible thing to think about but it has to it has to be done because there's no such thing as a decision that occurs in isolation and has no downstream effects and you know it's very easy in the heat of the moment to look at the proximal the near things and in this case it's the deaths from COVID and forget the distal the downstream effects of the impact on people's lives and the other deaths so um so, look, I hope people take his debate in the, in the way in which it's intended rather than seeing it as an attack on um, our current leadership. Yeah, look, I, look, I hope so. I mean, I, I think that what a lot of people don't realise is that I think scientists and economists both use these sorts of discussions. I mean, they, there's a thing called a, a quality, a quality-adjusted life year, and, and that's a sort of a measure of 
disease burden, and it's and and it's what Duncan Maskell was talking about that you've got to take when you're doing a, a an evaluation of whatever intervention you're doing, you've got to take into account both more, you know, life and the quality of life and the downstream effects, as you say. So, look, I, I mean, it's just interesting. It's back on the front page of The Age today, and uh, and I wonder whether, you know, it'll, it'll, I'm sure it'll promote some discussion. It'll, there'll be some backlash, but it's good to have the debate, I think. Hey, panel beater, well, before yeah. you go on to your next topic, I just want to see if panel beater wants any comments on that because yeah. uh, I know it's right down your alley too. Yeah, I totally agree with you guys that the, the conversation is crucial, but um, when you're doing policy conversation, you've got to make sure you've got your starting question correct. Or, you know, and it, or correct is obviously up for debate itself. But if you ask, you know, um, are people suffering by the lockdown, their businesses and otherwise uh, health, then the answer is going to be yes. I don't think anybody's going to um, disagree with that. I, Mike, the question I prefer in this scenario is what's the role of the state? What's the role of the government? And if people are suffering with their businesses and so on, we might say, well, in a rich country like Australia, it's going to hurt, but let's pay for it and make sure that we take care of it. If the assumption is that the only way people's businesses are going to be saved is so that they trade, then, of course, you're going to want to come out of um, out of lockdown. But if your starting question is, um, what's the role of the state in this? Um, you come up with perhaps different answers than if you're asking, what's the quality? You know, what, as you were saying, um, Dr Spock, you know, what's the quality of somebody in their 70s and 80s compared to somebody in their 30s and 40s? Very good point. Yeah. Look, it's a really good point, and I, you know, I think that the point is it's good to have the discussion to think it through. And I trust, as you say, I trust actually that the the, the, the guys in power, guys and girls in power, have been having these discussions and have sorted it all out. And this is the you know our plan is is uh, it's clearly paying off, as you say. So I think that we have to just trust in it. Hey, and just quickly, what's happening in your world, the world of um, paediatrics and infectious diseases? Well, you know, paediatrics particularly, uh, I mean, infectious disease, of course, COVID has been, uh, you know, a predominant thing. But um, I'm, I'm particularly, one thing that we've been particularly concerned in kids, and I guess it comes back to this discussion we've just been having, is there have been huge impact on kids. And, of course, everyone is now aware that kids are very mildly affected by the virus and they're not getting too sick and they're not actually probably even transmitting it much as, you know, we now understand. But we, there have been huge impacts that really worry us um, about children and that is particularly around school and mental health so the school closures and so on and all the remote learning we're increasingly realizing that there's a lot of kids who are unable to access education um there's been big changes there's you may i think you know um do a little about the uh national health poll that the royal children's hospital runs it's a it's a, a poll they do a survey of um, parents and children all around the country it's a sort of representative sample and uh, they've just the most recent one has just just been published and it's about the effect on the lives of Australian children and families by COVID and what's what a really stark message is that you know a lot of kids particularly those um, so kids have been affected their uh, you know mental health has been affected there's a, a huge increase in the number of um, presentations to hospitals um, of kids with eating disorders and self-harm um, so that's really worrying. Um, there's been a big inequality in the access to to online learning. So that's a that's a worry. Um, and and some of these things are going to continue to play out because, of course, you know we we think that a lot of kids are still not going to be able to access uh, remote uh, learning education as they know it for several months yet. So. You know, there, there are a lot of things that are affecting kids that we need now need to pay our attention to and to how we can get out of that. And then 
a really big concern is kids with disability who um, I know a lot of my own patients who they're, they're, the parents have given up on telehealth, allied health. They were sort of seeing the OT and the physio and the speech therapist by telehealth, but it's really difficult for their kids with, say, autism or, or other problems um, to sit there and do a session over telehealth. And so they've given up altogether. And so their kids are just not getting that sort of stuff. So we, we, we're really going to have to come out of this with pay great attention to these issues as we uh, come out of the lockdown. Yeah, I think we're just beginning to see the impact on, you know, a number of things, you know, and I think that our next guest, Professor John Emery, will talk a little bit about, you know, how well telehealth and telephone health are doing in the cancer sphere, you know, but why all around the place I'm hearing people in the hospital saying, gee, you know, the telephone's just not as good, is it? And, you know, the telehealth where you have the vision as well is a little bit better. And I'm sure we're going to, well, we've already heard it from school teachers on this program and other places as well, that, you know, it's just not the same trying to do it that way. Hey, Spock... Um, we're going to have to keep moving because we've got a guest waiting. Thank you for phoning in and giving us those updates. No worries, man. See you, Doolittle. See you, panel beater. See you. Speak to you. Look forward to being in the, in the studio together. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. All things being equal, we might have Professor John Emery on the line. Are you there, John? Yes, morning, Steve. Can you just bear with me while I tell people who you are in a little bit more detail? You are the Herman Professor of Primary Care Research at the University of Melbourne and the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre Primary Care Research and Education Lead. You're also Director of Cancer Australia Primary Care Collaborative Cancer Clinical Trials Group, such a mouthful, and Visiting Research Fellow in the Department of Public Health and Primary Care at the University of Cambridge. I could have summarised all that to say you're a bit of a legend in the, uh, in the academic sort of cancer research sphere. Is that fair to say? Although you're not going to agree. I'm not going to. Um, uh, well, it's very nice you to say so. <laughs> hey, we got you on today because you put some um, media out this re- week about how cancer tests have dropped about 50% during April. It's happening worldwide and there's falling rates of new cancer diagnosis. What's going on out there? Yeah, so this is a trend, as you say, that's been seen uh, in Australia and um, other parts of the world very clearly in the UK and Europe. Um, and so we've seen sort of falling rates of uh, cancer tests, uh, so um, uh, colonoscopies, uh, breast imaging, um, excisions for um, suspected kin- skin cancers. So um, during this period, particularly in Australia, during the sort of period of March to April, really marked drops in some of these key diagnostic tests uh, for suspected cancer. Um, and it's a, well, there are sort of a number of reasons that we think this may be occurring. Um, and if you look at the, some of the data about the way people have been consulting initially with their GPs, I think that starts to help explain uh, what's, uh, what's been occurring. What's happening there? What's happening with the general practice? Um... Yeah. So one of the big shifts that has occurred during COVID is this sort of switch to more uh, telehealth consultations. So overall, uh, GP consultations in Australia um, actually rose a little bit during March and April. Um, but, but there was a big swi- uh, switch to a, um, about a third of those occurring by telehealth rather than uh, face-to-face consultations. Um, and uh, most of the vast majority of those have just been by telephone rather than 
some sort of video consultation. I'm actually surprised that it's it's only a third. I know I've been to the GP a few times in the last uh, three or four months, and they put a you know my well, it might just be my GP of course, but they put a lot of pressure to do telehealth. They say, do you really need to come in? Do you really need to come in? Can't yeah. you do it by phone? If you need to come in after phone, we'll do it. So the fact that two thirds are still occurring face to face isn't bad, I guess. But what what's been the um, impression of telehealth and telephone? Yeah, so I think it's it, it, um, particularly for somebody who's presenting with uh, symptoms that might be due to a serious illness like cancer, it, it is much harder to assess that person just by telephone. Um, and uh, it's harder to sort of pick up some of the subtle cues that you would normally um, uh, use in a face-to-face consultation. Uh, so I think that's part of the issue. It's just harder to to really accurately assess um uh, a person's symptoms uh, by telephone. Uh, the other things that we may that may also be contributing to this is that um, some of the simple tests that you might order to begin with, say like blood tests and X-rays, there's been a big reduction in ordering of those as well. Um, and again, that it's uh, that may reflect that people are more reluctant to come in and have those tests done because, of course, people are concerned about. Uh, going to healthcare settings because of concerns about being exposed to COVID, um, and so we so some of those simple tests that a GP would normally order as a sort of first approach to assessing somebody's symptoms, they, those have fallen again by fifty to sixty percent. Wow. Do you think also there's an impression that people think the healthcare system's sort of closed up shop a little bit and is only focusing on COVID, especially early on when we heard in the news how all the hospitals were preparing for COVID, closing off elective surgery, making more ICU beds. Do you think there's a sense that the health system, you know, people think the health system is essentially prioritising one thing at the moment and so they're putting everything else on the back burner? Yeah, I think that's possibly uh, another part of this, that people are essentially sort of making those decisions that to hold off things because of the sense that, you know, the, the hospitals want to be focusing on managing people with COVID. Um, and certainly we've seen reductions in referrals to um, hospital specialists and to the, the Peter Mac. Um, uh, and again, it's hard to know how much this is patients choosing to hold off going to see specialists because of... This, this perception that actually we need to be protecting the health system at the moment for to be managing um, uh, COVID cases. Um, so what do you... Oh, that, sorry, John, I was going to... Yeah. yeah, sorry. No, so, you go, Steve. No, I was going to... Sorry, I, I thought... Um, I thought that um, you'd finished there for a sec. Mm. I was going to ask, what are the consequences? I mean, I guess it's mm. pretty obvious, but what are the likely consequences yeah. of the delayed diagnosis? Yeah, so, while, uh, so we're just beginning to see the impact of this reduced testing for suspected cancer uh, with um, reductions in diagnoses of, of many of the common cancers. Um, the, the, the formal data have not publicly um, uh, been uh, announced in Australia yet, but that's certainly we're expecting to see uh, quite clear data of reduced numbers of cancers being diagnosed as a consequence of these reductions in cancer diagnostic testing. That means that there will be people being diagnosed with their cancer at a later stage, um, which we know is uh, will often require more extensive treatment. And so earlier stage of cancers that may have been 
being able to be treated just with surgery may actually require additional treatment, so chemotherapy and radiotherapy to treat it. And also, unfortunately, these later-stage cancers are, uh, are less likely to be um, cured. So there are concerns in some of the modelling work that Martin Eisenman's group have, has, have, um, has done that we're likely to see an increase in cancer deaths um, as a result of these delays in um, cancer diagnoses. Can I just bring Panel Beater? Are you there? Yeah. Did you have something you wanted to ask? I, yeah, I do. I, I'm really uh, fascinated by this. Um, I wonder if could you benchmark against pre-COVID times? Are people good going mm. in and getting, um, you know, something suspicious checked out anyway? I mean, I, I, I accept that there's bound to be a difference during COVID, but mm. you know, what 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 is the what do we know about people getting uh, seen to early enough in a cancer identification and treatment process? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. We we know that there are certainly for some uh, cancer symptoms, then um, uh, people will often put up with those cancer symptoms for some time before they actually go and bother to see a, a doctor. Um, so there are certain key symptoms that uh, we would like people to come in and uh, and get checked out whether or not this was during COVID or not. So, you know, uh, unexpected bleeding from various places, so coughing up blood, blood in your poo, blood in your wee. Um, people will often put up with those things for some time. Uh, unexpected lumps, unexpected loss in weight. These are all symptoms that um, people will often put down to other causes um, and not go and see their doctor. I think that's possibly being exacerbated being during COVID because of concerns about going in to see uh, a doctor. Um, and then, uh, and that, again, is part of the problem. But we know that, you know, uh, patients will often put up with quite marked symptoms uh, before they actually uh, go and see a doctor about it. And that, that is... Uh, um, uh, you know, why we have symptom awareness campaigns to raise awareness of which are the symptoms that you really do need to go and get checked out. Hey, um, also, John, I'm interested, you work at the University of Melbourne, obviously, and we've been reading lots in the paper about all the various changes, students not there, everyone working from home. What's it like being a career academic at the moment? Yeah, look, it's been a big change. So um, uh, I have a research group of about uh, 25 um, and uh, that we're normally based in the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre building. And in March, we uh, were all sent home to work from home. So we've been managing all our research projects remotely uh, in that, since that time, doing all our work via Zoom. Um, and uh, some of our work, we that's fine to do, but we're, we're beginning to want to start new trials, and that requires us being able to get out and recruit patients from general practice and other settings, and uh, that's obviously much more challenging at the moment. Are you confident that you can keep the research grumbling, you know, not grumbling, going along at the, at the, the usual rates or close to it? Uh, so some of our research we, that has had less impact, so research that we have on existing data that we've collected or data that we obtain um, uh, through sort of more routine uh, data collection processes, then that has been much less impacted. But obviously our trials where we're trying to recruit 
um, patients into new studies, uh, that's, that is much more of a challenge. Hey, there's one other thing I just wanted to quickly ask you before you went, because when I was looking you up and doing, you know, my Googling, I noticed that you also worked at the Centre for Cancer Research at Melbourne Uni, and I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't actually know, I work in cancer, as you know, and I didn't quite appreciate it. Is this a new centre? Have I just, as usual, yeah. been walking around through life slightly vague and oblivious to everything going on around me? Uh, no, you, the, we are a relatively new centre uh, that was set up by the university um, probably about three or four years ago now um, and has been gradually building over the last few years. Uh, we're a sort of multidisciplinary centre. We're housed in the same building as the Peter Mac. Um, and uh, we have a sort of strong focus around what's called precision oncology um, and precision prevention of cancer. So uh, quite a targeted approach to understanding the um, genomics of particular cancers that can be used to then inform uh, more targeted cancer treatments and also uh, the genomics of, of, what, um, of what causes cancer as well so that we can actually identify people who are more likely to develop cancer and target our prevention and screening strategies. Must be a pretty amazing time to work in cancer. I mean, even I mean, I suppose Melbourne's had an enormous amount of investment, but between the Peter Mac Research Group, WeHi, all the groups at Melbourne Uni, all of the other hospitals that have cancer research centres, it, it it must sort of feel. I mean, of course, you know, it's cancer, but it must feel like a little bit of a golden era in terms of research. It is. I mean, it's a very exciting uh, area to be working in. There's obviously significant advances in treatment, but also again advances in our ability to identify people who are at uh, increased risk of cancer so we can target our prevention and early diagnosis strategies um, and sort of more novel approaches to thinking about how we provide cancer services in a more integrated way across the whole healthcare system. So I guess the take-home message right now during this pandemic is the importance of people being vigilant to the symptoms, in particular the things you mentioned, like unexpected bleeding, lumps, unexpected loss of weight, and um, taking them seriously. And in fact, now more than ever, especially you can get onto telehealth, you can at least get a chat, go in, get the measurements done, and, uh, and uh, you know, keep your focus, keep vigilant, I guess. That's right. And certainly if your GP says that they really think you need to come in and be seen face-to-face and uh, have an examination to have your symptoms checked out. Your GP will be, uh, that that will be very sensible advice. Um, They'll have all the procedures in practice to make it safe to ensure that um, patients with COVID symptoms are are not going to be in the waiting room. So it's a Practices are safe to go and take the advice of your GP if they feel that you, you need to come in to get those symptoms checked out, then follow that advice. John, thanks very much for coming in here and for jumping on the phone and joining us this morning. We appreciate it very much. Um, I will say goodbye to you. Okay, thank you very much, Steve. Thanks for inviting me on the call. Cheers. That was Professor okay. John Emery from the Mel- from Melbourne University uh, and uh, the VCCC, the Victorian Com- Comprehensive Cancer Centre. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
Associate Professor Natasha Smallwood is a consultant respiratory physician at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and a Principal Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne. In addition to her respiratory qualifications, she holds postgraduate qualifications in palliative care and epidemiology, which is probably what led her to the study that we're going to talk about today. Why don't you start the ball rolling? Oh, by the way, Natasha, on this show I'm called Dr. Doolittle. I probably should tell you that much. <laughs> I forgot to warn you before the show. I've dropped the Steve name and I'm Doolittle, which most people call me anyway. Okay, sounds good. Hey, uh, tell us about your study. Okay, so the um, the study that I'm running is called the Australian Frontline Health Workers Study. Yep. Um, we've been running the study for about the last three weeks, and it's a very large national survey of all um, healthcare workers working on the front line during the COVID nineteen pandemic. And what we're really trying to do is work out what people are experiencing in terms of social change, social distress, financial change, but also trying to understand a bit about people's um, psychological distress. So a bit about the mental health that frontline healthcare workers are experiencing, which is a little bit different to the general population. Yeah, now I've done the survey because it got sent around my hospital about five times and I know a lot of other people did too. By the way, mm. what is a frontline worker? Are you using the term really loosely? Because, you know, I mean, I do a ward round once a week, but otherwise I'm either on Zoom or doing admin and organisational stuff. So, you know, it's it's a really good question because when I was designing this study um, quite a few months ago now, actually, as the pandemic sort of originated, I had in my mind quite a tight definition for what a frontline healthcare worker was, and I, I thought of that as a person who perhaps worked in the emergency department or in general medicine or in the intensive care unit or perhaps in a respiratory ward. So I kind of had that quite um, tight definition, but actually it became quite clear as we were developing the study that actually most healthcare workers thought that they were pretty much on the front line, whether they were in the community, in primary care, in private practice, they all felt that they had, um, you know, that they were looking after people who potentially could have COVID and therefore actually had that exposure and therefore were frontline workers. So, and in fact, we had plenty of people working in mental health who said to us, but you can't leave us out, we're frontline workers too. So we actually quite quickly changed our definition to say, if people identify as a frontline health worker, then that's fine, we accept that they are. So it could be somebody working in a hospital, it could be someone in the community, it could be in private practice, and really from any professional group and background. And one of the things we've been quite clear about is we want to be very inclusive. So we've got doctors, nurses, OTs, physios, allied health workers, but we also really wanted to hear from the clerical staff in those environments because they've experienced as much change and disruption as the rest of us. So basically anyone working in the healthcare industry associated with health can jump online and do this survey. As I pointed out before, it's on our website. Do you, I've actually got the website written down. We may as well read it out now whilst we're on the topic. Do you have it on the top of your head or will I? Ah, I've got it. It's www.covid-19-frontline.com.au. I found it easily doing COVID-19 frontline in my Google search, Victoria. So you want pretty much anyone to jump online and do this survey? Absolutely. And people don't need to have worked with patients with COVID to take the study. It's not really related to having worked with people. It's um, anyone can take it because we've all experienced profound social change and, you know, psychological distress has actually been really common. That's one of the preliminary findings we're seeing. So people don't need to have worked with COVID patients. We really um, encourage everyone to take it. We particularly would like to get more people from the community and primary care and um, particularly from Allied Health. We've actually had 7,000 respondents in the first three weeks, which is absolutely astonishing. You just don't see that in um, cross-sectional surveys, but we would really like to get at least another three to 5,000 people 
and then we'll actually have run the largest study on this topic in in the world. It's amazing. It's amazing that you got it up so quick. I'm going to ask you more about that. But first up, tell us what are some of the early results? Yeah, sure. So um, it's interesting because we've had a predominantly um, female response. Now, obviously, a lot of people working in healthcare are women, so nurses, allied health are more female predominant um, uh, professions. But we also know that women have experienced more disruption, and that's coming out from other countries, particularly because many women, including myself, have um, children and have to look after them, and home- homeschooling has clearly contributed to the stress of a lot of us. So we're seeing a lot more women take the survey, and often when you do a survey, you get a, a kind of a, a bit of a selection response so that people who've had more change are more likely to take it. So, again, that's giving us a bit of a signal that, like other countries have found, women have actually found it harder to deal with some of these um, changes. We've seen, um, saying that, even though we have got a lot of women, we've actually got a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses, we've got a very broad representation in our group of respondents. And I guess the saddest thing we're seeing is that three um, two-thirds of people have reported that they think they have anxiety and more than half are reporting depression and burnout. And that is a really frighteningly high statistic and it is much higher than we would normally expect in healthcare workers. So there hasn't been an awful lot of work on healthcare workers in their day-to-day lives and we don't have the stress of the pandemic, but we know that healthcare workers do experience more psychological problems because it's a high-stress job, right? There's a lot of pressure, um, you know, you've got people's lives in your hands, you know, so it's a high-pressure environment. So we know people working in these areas are more susceptible, but we're just seeing that that um, level of reported distress is astonishingly high. Um, We know, obviously, that the general population is also experiencing this, but our study is giving us some very clear insights into what people are worrying about. So a lot of these frontliners are worried about getting the infection themselves and actually, more importantly, bringing it home. And that has been a very clear concern for a lot of the workers. They're so worried about infecting their loved ones. They're so worried about what people will think about them if they do get infected, Um, you know, which is terrible and I think sort of highlights some of the stigma around infectious diseases, but particularly covid Um, And we're seeing that people actually aren't seeking help for these problems. And I guess that's the saddest finding, that we've got so many people reporting psychological distress of many different types, and yet these healthcare professionals are not seeking help. You know, there are many well-established pathways, whether it's a psychologist or a GP or using an employee assistance program. There are actually many different programs that exist to support healthcare workers. But in actual fact, most of the people who've responded have said they haven't used them. So they're trying to battle along themselves without having sort of formal processes to support them. And they're kind of flying, you know, um, by the sort of wind, just trying different things to improve how they can manage their mental health at this time. Natasha, it's uh, panel beta here. I'm the um, I'm the non med person on the team here, so I get to ask some very naive questions. Mm. Um, and I hope this one works. The... Um, Mike, we've done some segments in the past on healthcare worker well-being and mental health, and uh, pre-COVID, and even in those segments, it was clear that mental health and well-being for health workers is already pretty fraught, right? You know, long hours, um, high stress, um, just by virtue of being in the sort of work that health workers do. Um, how much of this change can we attribute to it being COVID and not just a now an opportunity for people to record the level of stress that they may have been carrying for a long time anyway? Do you know, Panel Beater, that's a, another really good question. Um, 
people haven't understood well enough what the baseline level of distress is. So it's best understood in certain groups of people. So I should stress, by the way, that I am actually a lung specialist. I'm not, <laughs> not a mental health person, but I do have some understanding of this, but not as well as my, my colleagues in mental health. But there is some evidence showing that... Um, doctors and nurses do experience a lot of um, or experience more psychological distress than the general population and and indeed actually have higher suicide rates than the general population in normal times when we don't have a pandemic. But the levels that we are seeing are much, much higher than what has been known in the past. And what's been known in the past isn't enough. You know, we know a bit about doctors and a bit about nurses, but we actually don't know enough about them and we don't know enough about other groups of healthcare workers. Saying that, though, we can still see there's a very high level, a much higher level than has been reported in previous studies when there haven't been crises or pandemics. And I think the other thing that's quite important in the data that we've got, and it is just a preliminary analysis. So, you know, we've got 7,000 people, but we still want to get another 5,000. But the preliminary look at the data tells us that these people are reporting that their anxiety and distress is related to the pandemic. It's related to their fears about getting infected, infecting others, being blamed if they get infected. You know, will they have failed to do things correctly? You know, there's a lot of, as well about people are, are struggling and whether they've received good communication or bad communication, whether they feel supported, whether they feel that they work in a great team or not. So there's a lot of um, distress that people are reporting. And one of the other things that they actually specifically mention is the concept of moral injury. And and moral injury is how someone feels when they can't provide usual best care, what we would expect to do. And moral injury is something that has been seen more overseas because of, um, you know, healthcare systems that have been overwhelmed where they've actually had to ration resources like, you know, intensive care beds or putting people on ventilators. And so we've seen that overseas, particularly, there's been a lot of moral distress because, you know, we all want to do our best. It's a privilege to be a health professional and to look after people, particularly towards the end of life. But to not be able to do best care is extremely distressing then, whether that's limiting ventilator beds or actually knowing that someone dies alone without a family member with them. It's extremely hard to accept that you're not offering someone best care, particularly at the time of death. And so moral injury is something that's come up. You know, people are um, saying in their free text responses to us that they're just so sad not to be able to deliver the best care for, for whatever reason, which is not so much around ventilators and you know, ICU beds, we're, we're so lucky that our healthcare system has not been overwhelmed. But people have struggled a bit about, you know, wearing a mask and trying to provide care, not being able to smile at a patient, not being able to show empathy, you know, not, not being able to care for someone as well as you normally would at the end of life because of the risk of being infected, which obviously is absolutely important. These restrictions need to be there. But it does, you know, we know it impacts on the quality of care. And for many of us, that contributes to our distress at an already really stressful time. You know, I, personally, for me, it's just the grind. It's just been so busy, just getting organised for COVID, learning all the new digital technologies, downloading stuff to do from home. So there was a huge educational load. On top of that, longer hours. Um, I think a lot of people I know, including myself, have had to work longer hours to work on different projects. Of course, the uncertainty of everything and just the weight of that. Uh, and then, you know, just the fear that's permeated everyone. I wonder what it's been like for you personally. What, what's been your experience of, um, of COVID and how have you coped? 
gosh, you know, everything you've just said, I totally relate to. And I think, you know, that relates to many of the, the participants' responses too. But, God, the incessant emails about it and, you know, updating people on different aspects, it just... It just pervades all aspects of our lives, doesn't it? Whether you're at work or you're at home checking your emails or whatever. I just, you can't get away from it. It's it's on the news. It's in your face. It's all anybody talks about. You know, even just walking down the street, seeing someone wearing a face mask. You know, it's a beautiful sunny day outside, but you suddenly see someone wearing a face mask and you think, oh, yeah, the world's not normal, is it? So it's just the pervasive nature of it that I have found a real struggle. And the fact that every time you kind of think that there's a glimmer of hope, then something else happens, you know, whether it's in our country or, you know, for me back home in the UK, just something else happening. And it's the perpetual nature of it that it's so long-term as well. So I, I have definitely found the grind really challenging and the fact that I can't quite see what the new normal is and I, and I miss the idea that, um, you know, I miss the idea of travelling and doing great things and I miss being able to go home and, and seeing family at home. I've personally really struggled with having three children homeschooling and my, my youngest is only eight and a half that's been a real challenge wow. so trying to do five clinics from home and have an eight and a half year old come in regularly ask me if she can have a biscuit or you know how do I log into Google Classroom and I'm thinking I don't know um you know I found that actually just really really challenging to try and do a clinic and talk to a patient and actually be desperately signaling to a small child to leave the room at the same time so you know it's just it's just all of it isn't it it's just such a challenge but it's kind of where we're at. That point you make about how, you know, on the one hand, you feel inundated and overwhelmed with all the information. On the other hand, you know, you're working and taking on extra, you know, you're doing a whole lot of stuff in COVID. You know, it really reminds me of all the, you know, I've seen many PTSD people over the years. And one of the symptoms of PTSD is they avoid reminders. And so, so many people used to tell me that, you know, they do everything they can to avoid reminders, say, of the war. Yet at the same time, there's this sense that they're obsessed with it because it's changed their life so much. And it feels the same Mm. with COVID. On the one hand, I don't want to miss the latest COVID news. On the other hand, I'm sick of the latest COVID news. Hey, um, which brings me to another thing on this. What, you know, you're a respiratory physician, <laughs> researcher. What got you, what triggered you to um, do a survey of frontline healthcare workers and their, um, you know, psychological and other ad- adaptation to COVID? Yeah, it's not really my, my, my normal research topic because normally most of my research is in um, severe lung disease. Although, saying that, I do love doing surveys. I've done lots of large national and international surveys, so I'm a bit of a nerd at heart, and I love this kind of research methodology. So that epidemiology training has kind of been um, what drove me to do this in part. But I guess um, I do have a vague interest in, in mental health because... Um, because I look after people with very severe lung disease and mental health is actually quite key in, in caring for those types of people really holistically. It has been an area where I've been doing a little bit of research. but And, in fact, that was, um, for me, then quite helpful because I have a fabulous research um, partnership with uh, Professor Karen Willis, who's actually at La Trobe University and who's a sociologist. And so because we were doing a bit of mental health research in people with chronic disease, it actually was quite easy then to set up this partnership and this um, research group to do this particular study. But I guess what really drove me was seeing the effects that COVID was having on, you know, myself, but also on all my colleagues, um, not just at Royal Melbourne, but everywhere, you know, my colleagues through at different hospitals, my colleagues in the community, and seeing that all of us actually were reporting just these incredible levels of, of stress and distress, you know, what you're talking about, the grind and the kind of addiction to keep looking at the news and see what was going on. 
you know, you could just see that everybody was, was really struggling. And at the start, we had that incredible desire for more information, but then information overload and, you know, all these things that we were trying to manage. And so for me, it really made me look around and think, we really need to know more about this, not just so that we, we know. Like, the purpose of this study is not just to say, hey, no, we know the prevalence in this country too, because that's not interesting. Um, we know it's going to be high. All, all those kind of results are expected. What I actually wanted to do was use this to change. Um, you know, as a, as a respiratory physician who does palliative care, I'm aware of the concepts of, of self-care and the importance of looking after ourselves. And, and that's a really lovely concept that is used a lot in palliative care, that, you know, that type of work of dealing with death and dying takes a real toll on the healthcare worker themselves and that you have to be attentive to yourself and care for yourself. Because if you don't, if, you, if you're not happy and kind and, and content in yourself, you can't offer that level of care, that level of empathy to your patients. So self-care is an idea that I'm familiar with, but it's not really something that's um, adopted by, by healthcare workers in other disciplines or in other areas, which is a bit of a shame. And I think this is an opportunity to say, you know, the good old quote, physician heal thyself. Well, it's actually all healthcare workers. We need to heal ourselves. We need to be more attentive to mental health. And we need to know what the risk factors are the damaging our mental health. So clearly a crisis, a pandemic, and one that just persists is a huge risk factor. And, you know, that's but, a really good... I'm just, just going to cut you off because we've got, we're almost out of time, I'm sorry to say. Um, but, Natasha, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about the study. And, and I guess the main message we want to get out to people today is to jump online, um, covid COVID-19-frontline.com.au to do this survey and get as many people as we can across Australia um, enrolled in the survey. Uh, Professor Natasha Smallwood, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Dr. Doolittle. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We'd better say our thank yous. Professor John Emery from Melbourne University talking about cancer. Associate Professor Natasha Smallwood from Royal Melbourne Hospital, respiratory physician, talking about that amazing frontline worker survey. What a great awesome um, thing that is. Uh, uh, Doolittle. I know they were both fantastic, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Both, um, you know, from media releases this week. Um, they've, you know, there is so much going on at the moment. It's it's almost hard to keep track. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.